live from Liverpool, the dark paranormal season twelve. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the dark paranormal season twelve. I'd like to begin, as always, by thanking everyone who reached out following last week's episode, An Eternal Evil. It certainly appears to have piqued quite a lot of interest in what effect our ancestors' dalliances with the occult may have further down the hereditary line. Who knows, maybe we do in fact pay some price for the dabblings of our ancestors. But one thing is for sure, and that the debate is always encouraged. Now, we do have a new email address if you wish to get in contact with the show, and that is contact at thedarkparanormal.com. Or, of course, you can visit the website thedarkparanormal.com and click Contact Us. Now, today's true paranormal experience, as promised, is something which is carried over from our Patreon show, Dark Bites. This is not the version you'll have heard if you're a Patreon. This has been re-edited by the submitter and re-recorded by myself for The Dark Paranormal Season 12. For those unaware how this episode has came around, on Dark Bites, which is the Patreon-only show, we take a look at some of the shorter submissions. This particular submission was so intriguing that after I concluded reading it for Dark Bites, I wanted to know more. And I wasn't alone. Our Patreons were in agreement with me that everyone should have the opportunity to hear this fascinating experience. But before we take our journey over to India for today's experience, I of course need to thank our wonderful team over at Patreon. When you join our Patreon, not only will you receive these episodes both ad-free and before everyone else... You can also receive exclusive access to the Patreon-only podcast, Dark Bites. Dark Bites is released each and every Sunday, even on the downtime between seasons, meaning you never miss your paranormal fix. We've built a wonderful community of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over on Patreon, and we'd like to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. Just like the following wonderful new team members have. Tina Davis, Lindsay P, Christian Siverston, Moesha Gator, Amanda Murphy, Quinn Pallone, Jalissa Hankins, Jimmy, Andrew Atwell, Katrina Clift, Nikisha Collins, Amber Jones, N. Stefani Eleven, Addison Walker, John Stallion, Stacey Buckler, Jessica Gilbert, Ariana Campbell, Jody Rogers, Jenna Patterson, Pascal Quintero, Jason Travis, Stephanie Harris, Maya Grubau, Caitlin L., Eric Hoff, Laura McCulloch, Maggie Anderson, Jade Perriera, Preston, Holly Bentley, Matthew, Emily Kenobi, Buffy Winchester, Matthias Van and Einden, David Roman, Lucy Azito, Mandy Fitzgerald, and Siobhan. Thank you so much, guys, for joining the team. I hope you enjoy all the early ad-free releases and, of course, all those Dark Bites episodes. So don't forget, if you'd like to become one of our team, head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. But right now, it's time to lower those lights. Make yourself comfortable and, of course, leave your disbelief at the door as we hear about one listener's experience with the dark arts. Hi, Kevin. My name is Kinar. For the past few decades, 
Yes, it's been that long. I've been wanting to share my experience, but I felt I'd be ridiculed, laughed at or dismissed. I now feel confident that, through this show, I can share with you and your listeners my experience. I suspect some will scoff at this, and some may listen with intent. All I can say is that this is my story, my experience. And no matter how much I try to block it out, I just can't. I'm of Indian heritage and of Hindu faith. I grew up in a small town, and as a small boy, I sadly lost my father. Hindu faith dictates that the body of the deceased is cremated and the ashes scattered in the holy river Ganges in India. As we were not living in India and didn't have the finances to travel there with the ashes, we sent them with someone who was traveling to India and we asked him to perform the final rites, the scattering of the ashes in the Ganges. Being the eldest son, I perform the funeral rites, the cremation. It's not like it is today, a coffin, a curtain and a furnace. My dad's rites were performed in the old way, a body tied on the funeral pyre. Bodies are tied so they don't curl up, otherwise it gives the impression that the person being cremated has began to sit up. More wood is placed on the body, and after certain prayer rituals, the pyre is set alight. The next day, you go with the priest and male family members and gather the ashes. After the ashes were sent, we continued with our lives, albeit without my father. When I was 12, our family came over to the UK and we settled here. Everything was normal and peaceful and we settled in and went about our daily lives. But around age 15, things started to happen. Things which scare me even today. I started having these recurrent dreams. A woman, dressed in a red sari, and her head and face completely covered. She would ask me to come with her, as my father was waiting to tell me something. In my dream, I would go with her, and she would take me to this large tree and say, Your father's waiting behind that tree. I would walk up to the tree and I'd look behind it, but there was never anyone there. The woman would then start laughing and screaming, and I would wake up with tears in my eyes. I would have a clock by my bedside, and the time would always be between 3.05 and 3.15am. These dreams continued, and each time I would be took to a different place, a house, a park, a seaside, a forest. Each time I would go searching for my father, and each time he was not there. <laughs> the woman would again laugh, scream, and I would wake up crying. These dreams continued for a year or so, until I found the courage to tell my mother. It wasn't a straightforward decision to tell her. I really had to think long and hard. You see, since my father's death, 
I've been very protective of my mother, and I didn't want to worry her. I definitely did not want my mum to think that I was having some sort of breakdown. My mother is superstitious, and her faith means a lot to her. Hinduism is steeped in stories of good and evil. It celebrates the triumph of good over evil, so there is an acceptance that evil exists in many forms. Therefore, there are many Hindu priests worldwide, like Catholic priests, I guess, who are knowledgeable in the paranormal and the occult, the performing of blessings, exorcisms and rituals, all to ward off evil. My sleepless nights became too much, and many people noticed that I'd started to become more withdrawn. I finally plucked up the courage to tell my mother, and when I did, her first response was for me to see a Hindu priest, and this was a great comfort. She didn't question me, or try to make me believe that I was imagining things. We went to the local temple, and from there, we were recommended to see a priest who specialised in things like this. Little did I know that this was the start of a journey that would take me across the globe and give me experiences that, quite frankly, were beyond traumatic. I went to see the priest, accompanied by my mother, and I relayed the story to him. He probed and questioned me for well over an hour. Well, what does this woman look like? How tall is she? Is she carrying anything? Can you see her feet? Are her hands dark? It was like an interrogation you see on TV. He asked and I answered to the best of my knowledge. Finally, he turned to my mother and suggested something. He thought it was my father trying to connect with me, as his ashes were never scattered. Those final rites were never conducted. He said that dreams like this happen when the soul is restless. I was so confused, but relieved at the same time. Confused because I thought, well, why would my dad want to connect with me? Surely he'd connect with my mother. Why me? The priest suggested that as I was the eldest son, and I was the one having these dreams, I should go to India, to a particular place called Chanod, and perform a post-death religious ceremony that would help my father move on in the next part of his journey, to be reborn. We believe in reincarnation, and the funeral ceremonies, and there are many, need to be performed to ensure that the soul carries on its journey. There can't be any shortcuts or skipping of rituals. My mother agreed straight away. I did not. From the way the priest was explaining things, his language in his tone, it suggested that this was not going to be easy. I was only 15, and I was scared. To be fair, my mother did say that there was no expectation that I should go on my own, or that I should go as soon as possible. 
Even if the advice was that we had to go immediately, we simply couldn't. We weren't financially able to travel to India. So, four years on, at the age of 19, I travelled, alone, to Chanot, India. I opted to travel alone. The way I envisaged the trip, it would be one day of prayers and ceremonies, and then I could travel around, explore the country of my heritage. I was at university, so as soon as we broke up for summer, I jumped on a plane and went to India. I landed in Mumbai, and from there I took a train to the city of Varodhra. Here I was to meet a contact who would find the right priest for me, someone who specialises in post-death rituals. I contacted Suresh, not his real name, and he told me he'd found a priest and that a car would come to my hotel the next day to pick me up and take me on to Chanod. The next day, the car arrived with Suresh, and we made our way. Chanod is an eerie place. It's situated on a riverbank, but even in bright sunlight, there is a darkness. And I was uneasy from the moment I set my eyes on the place, it is, nevertheless, a holy and sacred place. The rituals that are performed here, though, are all to do with death. Or post-death, to be precise. We got out of the air-conditioned car and the humidity hit me. There was no breeze, just sweltering heat. We made our way down some steps and there was a priest waiting for me. He was, I would say, in his seventies. He spoke very softly and explained what the ritual would consist of and what I must and must not do. He studied his astrology chart to find an auspicious date and time. Today was not that day, so I had to return to the hotel. Two days later, at 10.17am, I sat down to perform the ritual. Hindu astrology charts are very particular about dates and times, so it was 10.17am exactly. Before sitting down, I was escorted into a tent, where I was asked to remove my clothing. I was then asked to go into the river, stark naked, and when the water reached chest height, I should immerse myself to cleanse my body. The priest told me that once I came from under the water, I must walk back to land without looking back. He was insistent that I should not look back. And I did what he said. I went in the river, submerged myself, came up and walked back, all without looking back. I was then given a cotton dhoti, which is a white sheet that you wrap from your waist down. And the ritual then started. The priest lit a fire, or haven, and started chanting. Every now and then, he would ask me to repeat lines and words. After about 30 minutes, he asked me to go back into the river and repeat the steps. Submerge, emerge, and walk back without looking back. 
This happened every 20 to 30 minutes. After about three hours of praying and chanting, I was asked to go back in the river one last time, which I did. Again, the priest told me to not look back when I emerged from the water, to come straight out and go into the tent and change my dhoti, and I did as I was told. I walked into the river, and when the water was chest high, I submerged myself for the final time. But as soon as I came up, there was a crescendo of voices, like people, hundreds of people, all talking over each other in languages that I could understand and some I could not. I was terrified and I could not move. I then thought, I thought I heard my grandfather's voice amongst this cacophony. I could always make out his voice. It was loud and booming. I stood there for what seemed like an eternity. I was in a daze. I still remember the utter panic, the noise, the heat, my body frozen still. This noise, these voices, all asking me to do things, questioning me, asking why I'm here, why I'm not praying for them. My head was thumping with pain, like I was being battered by a hard object. It was a strain to even open my eyes. I must have stood there for a while, because the priest's assistant came into the river and escorted me out of the water. Once I was on dry land, there was total silence. No voices, nothing. The priest sat me down and I started crying uncontrollably. To this day, I don't know why I cried so much, but I just couldn't stop. The headache was gone. My eyes were fine, but I just could not stop crying. After a short while, I composed myself. I said my final prayers, and I made my way to the top of the road to wait for the taxi to come and pick me up. There was a peace, a peace all around me, and I had this feeling of being light, stress-free. Everything I was asked to do, I did. And now, with the prayers over, I could explore the area, go shopping. My siblings had given me a list of things they wanted. As I was waiting, an old woman came up to me and asked if I was okay. She had such a kind face and a very soft voice. Touched by her concern, I said yes and thanked her for caring. She kept staring at me. But it wasn't a menacing stare. It was welcoming, and you could feel her compassion, her care. I was getting overwhelmed. She then asked if I had any protection. Well, that sort of shook me back to my senses. I was quite confused. Protection from what? I asked. Them, she said nodding her head towards the river. I didn't know how to react, but before I could say anything, she gave me a small pouch. It was a red cotton sheet with the ends bunched up together. Inside were some things. I had no idea what, but it felt like seeds and twigs. She took my hand 
placed it in the palm of my hand and told me to keep it with me wherever I go. Not questioning or suspecting anything, I accepted this protection and put it in my pocket. As is our tradition, I bowed down to her and touched her feet, and in return she gave me her blessing by touching me on the back of the head. I thanked her and she turned around and walked away. I was feeling good now, even privileged that a stranger had come up to me and given me a blessing. My taxi arrived and I left. I returned to the hotel and had my dinner. I had this feeling of achievement and was completely at peace. Let's have a quick break to talk to you about Policy Genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank accounts. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where Policy Genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how Policy Genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award-winning agents will walk you step by step through the entire process. But the best thing about Policy Genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to-do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. The evening was slightly cooler, and as the hotel was in a busy part of town, I thought I'd go for a walk and see what the city had to offer. There were food stands and carts selling trinkets and toys. All the shops were open and there was music playing out of small transistor radios. As I strolled down the street, fending off sellers persuading me to buy their wares, in the corner of my eye, I saw a woman in a red sari. It was not a blur or a passing image. It was real. I quickly turned my head, but there was no one there. Again, I didn't think too much about this and continued walking, but every now and again, I would see a figure in red. Never directly in front of me, but always in the corner of my eyesight. At the back of my mind, I had that, oh no, it's happening again, type of feeling. But my rational conscious mind told me it was just an after-effect of everything I'd gone through that day. I must have been walking around 40 minutes when I decided it was time to head back. When I returned to my room, I noticed a puddle of water where my suitcase was. Leaking roof, I thought, but looking up, the ceiling was dry. Thinking not much about it, I used a towel to mop it up. 
As I walked into the bathroom to drop the wet towel in the bathtub, the bathroom door slammed shut, and it was shut with great force. It really made me jump. I looked back and the door was indeed shut. Trying to convince myself that there wasn't anything sinister, as one would, I told myself it must be the wind, but I knew full well the windows were all closed. I walked up to the closed door and turned the handle, and it opened with ease. But right there in front of me, there was another puddle of water near my bed. I could feel fear setting in, unsure how to react. After a few seconds, I pulled myself together and called housekeeping to come and mop it up. I left my room immediately, and I went to the lobby to get a bite to eat. This hotel had a late-night snack bar, and I fancied some biscuits and a cup of tea. The day was over. I'd achieved what I'd set out to do. I consciously refused to think about seeing the woman in red, or the voices in the river, or the puddles in the bedroom. It took some convincing, but eventually I rationalised everything and was finally content to let things be. I went to bed that night and I think I fell asleep pretty quickly. But around 3am, I was awoken by a sound of men whispering. And the sound was coming from somewhere in my room. As I tried to work out where it was coming from, I realised it was coming from the bathroom. I stayed absolutely still, trying to make out what they were saying, but to no avail. I finally managed to move my arm, and as I switched the light on, the whispering stopped. But the bathroom door handle started rattling as if someone was trying to open a locked door. I stared at the door, and it opened lightly. And then it was shut, and the handle started rattling again. I panicked and ran out of the room and made my way to the lobby. It was... As you would expect at this time of the morning, empty except for the man sat behind the desk, who had a really puzzled look about him. But, as all good hotel staff would, he showed support and asked me to sit in the lobby whilst he went to investigate. When he came back, he nodded, saying the bathroom floor is now covered in water. Red water. I was shocked. How? Red water. It just didn't register. I explained how the water had been clear moments before, and more importantly, I tried to impress how none of this was my fault or my doing. He asked me to come and have a look, and escorted me to the bathroom. And indeed, the water was now a light red in colour. The bathroom wasn't flooded, but there was water. The amount, I would guess, would be if someone emptied a bucket on the floor. The red colour was like when vermilion, which is used in Hindu religious ceremonies, is sprinkled in a pot of water. I again protested my innocence, and furthermore, I refused to sleep in that room. I was offered another room, but I needed to be somewhere in the company of other people. I was scared and I didn't want to be alone. 
I was offered a large couch and a pillow, and that night I slept in the lobby. In the morning I asked staff to pack my bag, as I wasn't willing to go back into that room. They kindly packed my bag and brought it to me in the lobby, and I rang Suresh, and I asked if he knew of any other hotels in the area. Suresh was great, and he said he'd come to the hotel and take me to another hotel. So I left that one and checked into another. This hotel was a little grander than the first one, and the best thing was there were so many people there, and right now I needed human beings around me. I did not want silence. I still had six days left in India before returning home, and this hotel was in a great location to use as a base whilst I explored the surrounding areas. Nothing happened that night. Surprisingly, I was able to sleep, and I can't recall having any scary thoughts. The next day, I hired a motorbike, and I visited nearby temples and cultural places. That night, I went to bed, and there were no whispers or puddles of water. Everything was normal. Unfortunately, those feelings of safety were soon diminished. From what must have been a deep sleep, I woke up and sat bolt upright straight away, because there, at the foot of my bed, some seven feet away, someone was standing, staring at me. It was an outline, but it was a hundred percent real. It moved slightly side to side, then raised an arm and pointed at the window. I switched the light on, and there was no one there. Okay, I thought, that must have been some sort of shadow from the light peeking through the curtain. All was calm and quiet, until I turned my head towards the door. A white smoke started coming under the door, and a foul stench, like a dead animal. The smoke swirled around my room, came right up to my face, and disappeared. With that, there was no more smell, no smoke, nothing. I was terrified. And that night, I sat upright in my bed, opened my curtains, left the lights on, and watched TV until it was bright and sunny, and the room again had a nice, safe, warm glow of natural light. The next three nights were the worst. If the past experiences were terrible, these were multiplied tenfold. I wished I'd gone back home. I slept with the curtains open so there would at least be some light in the room. These experiences would always start by being awoken by someone or something whispering in my ear, in a language I'm familiar with, but not by any means fluent. It could be heard in one ear, then another, then both. The voices would multiply and felt like five or six people talking to me, over and over. Once I was awake, I would freeze, desperately trying to reach out to the bedside lamp, but I couldn't move. In that faint light coming from the streetlight outside, I saw three women, dressed in red saris, 
walking around the bedroom, accompanied by the return of that foul smell. I would catch the colour of the sari as they walked past the window, but their heads were covered, and they seemed to float more than walk. The whispers also returned, but this time accompanied with swearing and naming my dead family members. Again, it was the same questions, those I'd heard in the river. Why are you here? Leave now. Why will you not pray for us? And then, nothing. No sound, no movement, just me in the room. The final straw was when I was woken up by a powerful force pushing me down on my chest. It pinned me down by my arms and legs. I couldn't see anyone, but that foul smell returned, and all of a sudden I had a burning sensation on my wrists, and the pain increased and was felt all down my arm. The weight lifted, and my first instinct was to grab my arm. When I did, my left hand was covered in warm liquid. There was blood all over it, from three long, deep scratches from my elbow all the way down my hand, stopping just above my middle finger. I could hear laughters and whispers whilst the pain got increasingly intense. It felt like someone had pushed my hand onto a red-hot burning cauldron. I closed my eyes and prayed for it to stop, but the sounds just got louder and louder, and then silence. No sound, no smell. I reached out and turned on the light, and my bedsheets were drenched in blood. I felt faint, but I managed to call guest services. I must have passed out at this point, because when I woke up, I was surrounded by hotel staff and someone tending to my wound. My arm was bandaged, and it was bright and sunny outside. The hotel called the police, and I was interviewed by both them and the doctor. There was a suspicion that I'd tried to self-harm, but no sharp object that could inflict such a wound was found in the room. I was tired. I had no energy to explain what had happened. I rang my mum in London, and she advised me to speak to the priest who'd conducted the ceremony. I contacted Suresh, who picked me up and escorted me back to the priest in Chanard. I thought this would never end, and whatever that priest had done had clearly not worked. I was angry, sad, and extremely frightened. I just wanted it to stop, and desperately wanted to go back home. I sat down with the priest and I explained to him all the things I'd seen, heard, and I showed him my arm. He listened intently as I babbled on and on, telling him everything. After I had finished, he asked whether I'd heard voices when I was in the river. I was shocked. Yes, I said. Did you reply to any of them? He asked. No, I said, shaking my head. He then stared me right in the face and asked, Did you take anything back with you from here? Something you picked up? Something that was given to you? I had to think, and then 
Oh, my God. Yes. That small pouch the old woman gave me. I reached into my backpack and pulled it out. He stared at it and told me to put it on the ground. It was an old woman who gave you this. This wasn't placed as a question. It was stated as a fact. Yes, I replied. He then explained that the woman in question was someone who practised Melividya, loosely translated, dark arts. He then told me to pick up the pouch and throw it into the fire. He told me to come back the next day to perform another ritual. So I returned the next day, and the ashes from that fire were collected in a large metal pot. He asked me to go back to the river and scatter the ashes. I did as asked, and when I returned to land, he tied a black thread around my wrist. He told me to never take it off, and when it gets frayed and falls off naturally, I need to go to a temple and ask the priest to tie another one. I must be honest here and say that I didn't feel any sense of relief or ease. I just wanted to go home. I thanked him and I returned back to the hotel. That night, although initially petrified, I fell asleep quickly and slept really well. My time in India was ending, and before returning home, I went back to Chanod to donate some food and some clothing for the priests who perform all these various rituals. I often question whether I was imagining any of these experiences, but those three long scars, although faded, are still there. I've not experienced anything since leaving India, or should I say, since I scattered those ashes in the river. To this day, every year, on the anniversary of the final ritual, I send a donation to the priest in Chanot, who, without meaning to sound overdramatic, has kept me safe, and dare I say, sane. I don't know who or what that woman was I would see in my dreams, in my room, in the corner of my eye. I guess I'll never know and I think perhaps it's better I don't. I've learned to embrace things that are unexplainable, though every now and then I do fear going to sleep, just in case that woman does return. She hasn't, and I pray she never will. Kinnar Kinnar, as I said at the time of your submission of Dark Bites, thank you so much for this experience. It truly is one of the most visceral experiences I think we've ever received. And I think the word Chanod is going to get a few Google hits today. Exactly what you encountered there, I have no idea. I can't even begin to contemplate what took place or why. But I do know there are meant to be many places around the world which seem to be centres of dark magic. Although you do also say that Chanod is a place of spiritual and holy worship. I guess, therefore, what better place of power for people interested in the dark arts 
to try and focus and drain energy from. Either way, it stuck with me when we done it on the Patreon episode, and it again has stuck with me today. So once again, thank you, Kinar. And so that brings this episode of Season 12 to a close. For our Patreons, I'll speak to you again on Sunday for another instalment of Dark Bites, and for everyone, I'll see you here next week for Episode 5 of Season 12. Until then, remember, when you're discussing the paranormal, always try and leave some of your disbelief at the door. And I'll see you next time here on The Dark Paranormal.